Millions of despairing men, women and little children. Victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. You cannot shake hands with a clenched fist. Produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We're not saying that planet Earth is coming to an end. We're saying that planet Earth is about to be refurbished, spaded under, and have another chance to serve as a garden for another civilization. Most of the people in here are just your reflections. They're your mistakes. 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. One million of the planet's eight million species are threatened. You are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence ought to be a habit, not an act. Your lives and the credibility of the United Nations is at stake. Epstein didn't kill himself. The reason this is such an interesting time is not only because we're on the threshold of the end of this civilization. They're trying to take you out with bullshit. The experience of the past two years has proven beyond doubt that no nation can appease the Nazis. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. In the language of the US Department of Defense, these are unidentified aerial phenomena. Roswell's a very interesting place with a lot of people that would like to know what's going on. Uh, there is very compelling evidence that we, uh, we may not be alone. This is the Garden of Doom. Welcome everybody to Garden of Doom. Uh, this week we're continuing our series with uh, with UFOs, and we have Philip Kinsella is coming to us from the United Kingdom, uh, and Mr. Kinsella is a UFO author, and he's also an abductee. So he's got a very interesting story to tell, and he's going to tell it, and it just it doesn't just involve him. Um, but we'll get into that. I'll let him tell it in due course. Thank you so much for joining us, Philip. And how are you doing today, Jeff? Thank you very much for having me on your program. I'm very honoured. Thank you indeed. Oh, it's, it's my pleasure, and you're, you're about to hear a bing because I'm about to raise my speakers on my end, which I almost always forget to do at the beginning of the show, so the listeners who are long-time listeners are probably chuckling right now, but uh, carry on, uh, you know, uh, give yourself your own introduction and what you would like the, the folks to know about you. Oh, well, thank you very much. Yeah, well, my, my name is Philip Kinsella, and I've been involved with UFO research on a serious level of integration since 1989. However, um, I had uh, a number of other very strange experiences going into my childhood, um, but the main event that really shook me to the core um, was the abduction, um, the only one that I consciously recall that occurred in the winter of 1989, the village of Master Mortain here in England, which is five miles outside of Bedfordshire. Now, you know, anyone can just about claim anything, but, uh, you know, I'm one of these guys who is serious with their approach to anything that uh, doesn't fit in the current curriculum 
of how we view reality. And um, this is what led me, spurred me on a truth uh, to discover what aliens, as we call them, were, most notably the greys, and embarrassingly, and I say embarrassingly, not to offend anyone out there in the UFO community, but uh, during the experience that I had back in 1989, there had been three reptilians. Um, and I'll, I'll get to that more, more later. Um, and this then led to a plethora of other UFO sightings at close range. And interestingly, the last UFOs that I had seen, along with my identical twin brother, Ronald, had been on the 9th of April 2016 at 11.15 p.m. at night. And my niece had filmed them. I'll get to the story later. And this just blew open another can of worms. You know, what are we dealing with? Um, you know, people call them spaceships from other planets from other dimensions, you know, the list goes on us from the future. But I think the phenomena is far more complex than that. And of course, I had to research into consciousness um, and seeing whether or not, you know, there are other areas that we've missed. Um, but it appears that at this moment in time, we still are no nearer in understanding or truly getting our heads around what we are dealing with. Um, I can go into the abduction um, if you want, Jeff, if you want me to go into that. Uh, I, I think that we have to, but I don't know if that's where we have to start. Um, I don't know if you want to give a little biography of, of you know, yourself. Uh, well, I guess the abductions when you were a kid, so there probably wasn't much prior to that. Yeah. Why don't we start with the abduction? I mean, why, why bury the lead? Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll begin really when we had an experience when my twin brother and I were 13 years of age. Um, and this is uh, before the abduction in 1989. And we've been staying with our grandparents in Felton, Middlesex. They had a very large house out there, and my brother and I would always spend all our vacation periods with our grandparents. On this particular day, our grandfather had gone to work. Um, he worked for KLM, and we were with our grandmother in the back of uh, her garden. Beautiful summer afternoon. Can't remember if it was afternoon or evening. And a 13-year-old, you don't get a pad and note it all down. And, of course, UFOs were <laughs> not really uh, the, the common topic back then. But we'd been in the garden and uh, clear blue sky. And we'd observed what we thought, first of all, had been a silver balloon. And um, But this silver balloon was moving quite quickly and on some kind of trajectory. So it was moving with intelligence and quite, quite fast. Then it came over past a tree in the, the, the back of the garden and then positioned it above our grandmother's head. So it was, uh, you know, roughly about, I don't know, say about seven, eight, maybe nine feet above her head. But it was a perfect sphere, silver, and it looked dirty because of the reflection of the tree uh, from one side that seemed to be, uh, you know, upon its surface. And it was the strangest thing we'd ever seen. Now, my grandmother didn't really react to it, but me and my brother did. And it was incredible. It looked weighty. It had no markings on it. It didn't make any sound. And we were so shocked, we said to our grandmother, you know, Grandma, what is this? And she said, and her very words were, the fairies have come to take a look, closer look at us. Of course, we realized there were no fairies. Um, and this wasn't something from fairyland. It looked very solid. Um, and it was roughly the size of a football. And after it, positioned itself over and above our grandmother for perhaps maybe about, I don't know, 30, 40 seconds. It wasn't very long. It then moved towards the um, the first floor bedrooms to the house 
and then it seemed to be peeking through them. Then it lifted up to the um, third floor, the uh, second bedroom floor to the house, which would be the third floor, and then it popped over the top, and we ran inside, and we had to tr run across the second um, hallway on the first floor to the house through to our grandparents' room to see it making its, um, you know, its uh, disappearance as it was going. Well, what? It was very quick, and that. Why do, why do you think your grandmother said the, the fairies? Did, did, did she, is that how she saw it? Did she not see it? Or do you think that maybe they altered her perception? Or is that just the way she understood that kind of sighting to be? No, she did see the object, but she had also been psychic, you see. And this is, we're not sure whether or not she'd seen anything like this before because to her it didn't phase her. And I will tell you that that, that very night she'd been on the phone because in those days, you know, um, people used to have a telephone uh, desk and she'd sit in the hall and she phoned a family member and I was in the very top bedroom in the attic room and I could hear her speaking in whispers to someone, um, family member about this object that had been seen. Um, I'd never spied on, on my family, but it was interesting to hear what she was saying, that what happened. And... Um, but this has been a theme throughout some of our other family members with seeing these orbs, um, or what my brother calls the eye orb. They look like Foo Fighters from the World War II. Sure. And we know at that point there was no technology available uh, during that time, uh, which would categorically prove this was military. Um, it was anything but. And why would this thing be interested in two very unimportant grandsons staying with their grandmother? I mean, it's ridiculous. But that was the, the very first strange event that was acknowledged by another family member. And of course, others within the family knew about it. But then it was spoken of again. It was just seemed to like disappear into the mists of time. And then we moved to a village called Marston Mortain um, in Bedfordshire, which is five miles away from the main centre. It's a small town. And uh, we lived in a cul-de-sac, and on the winter of 1989, of course, during this period within my life, I've been age 20, um, I was just getting on with life as any, uh, you know, 20-year-old would. Um, I commuted back from work through the train. I didn't drive for this particular time in my life. And I got in through the door. We lived in quite a big house uh, in this uh, cul-de-sac. I got through the door, and my brother and my sister and our dog was there. And I must uh, point out here that the house had glass, all glass, frosted glass panels to the front of it. So when I walked through the, the hall, there were frosted glass doors also to the kitchen. And the kitchen was quite large with a kitchen diner and a conservatory and then the back garden and the aviary all the way to the back. I have to point this out because of this situation that was just about to occur during this point. Um, I walked through the door, walked into the kitchen and I lay back behind one of the counters in the kitchen so that I could view out into the hall and our dog was sitting in front of me. And my brother was facing me. He was in the dining area. So he could see me, but he couldn't see out to the hall. And my sister was to my far left. We were just talking about, you know, random stuff, I suppose, how the day was and what you're going to do for the rest of the, the evening. And this had been roughly around about quarter past seven at night. That's the time I used to go through the door when I finished my shift at work and got the train and got in into the house. And all of a sudden, the only way I can explain it was that there was this strange electrical charge that became, began to happen. It was as if the atmosphere was becoming uh, electrified. The dog started to re react to this by uh, slowly growling. 
and we were looking at each other, uh, not knowing what was what was happening. And then all of a sudden, my brother did something very strange. He raised his head to the ceiling, and it looked like he was in some kind of trance. And he said, "There's going to be an earthquake, or Grandma's going to die." Now there was no earthquake, and our grandmother at that point was still very much alive. So I'm looking at him, thinking, "What? On, what the hell are you talking about?" And at the same token, my attention is then drawn out to the hall um, and where the frosted glass windows are to the front of the house and uh, where the drive is, these white lights suddenly appeared. And I thought, first of all, that, you know, our mum had finished her shift early and come back early because she normally worked to the late hours, uh, early hours, sorry, late hours, early hours in the morning. But I realised at this point that they weren't car lights because the lights started to increase in intensity. And I'm standing there shocked looking at this. And what then happens defies all forms of science, in fact, physics, because I'm now seeing that the glass to the house is becoming pliable. And it's, it seems to be like jelly moving backwards and forwards while my brother is still frozen in front of me and the dog is now starting to bark furiously. This is when the hairs on the back of my neck came up really big time. And I then realized that there is this, the only way I could describe it was um, a three foot tall being. Uh, it was very diminutive in, in nature. It was clad entirely in black. And it wore what I assumed was some kind of larger helmet on its head. And this thing, which wasn't present before, walked through this jellified pliable glass that had been hit with its light. And as it came through, it ran into our downstairs bedroom stroke study. This is the room that my brother and I shared because it was one of the largest rooms downstairs we had this. And immediately as it darted through, the, the doors returned to normal, the light had gone, my brother had snapped out of his trance, and I was completely horrified. I shouted, there's an intruder in the house, and then I really yelled, there's an intruder in the house. And I reached behind me in the drawer to get the biggest knife I could find. Now, as I did that and I turned around and I looked through the hall, this thing, whatever it was, this tiny, small humanoid figure that was clad in black, raced from the corner of our, where our room and study was across the hall and up the stairs and it had disappeared. We made a search of the house, we couldn't find anything. And I remembered later on I broke down because I couldn't understand what had happened. Now our property lay not far from a church called St Mary's Church, which has some local legends drawn to it. And even my mind then was trying to formulate this idea that maybe our house was on a ley line and some weird stuff happened. I couldn't explain it. it. It was beyond explanation. You remember the comment um, about the fairies, and then maybe it was uh, something like the fair folk. Yes, that's right. And of course, you know, when you're dealing with this subject matter, it is something that uh, encompasses levels of high strangeness. But my logical mind was trying to work out what on earth had happened. Now, something else did happen, and something, unfortunately, uh, I was to suffer for um, in terms of the media, because... I had no wish for this to get out at all, but it got out accidentally when I joined a support group, um, a UFO group. Um, in the early hours of that very morning, there was no clock to be seen. I mean, I couldn't, we didn't have a clock hanging that was large enough for me to see at this point. But in the early hours of the morning, I then found myself 
in the same area as this being had been through, three feet off the ground, floating on my back. So imagine, if you will, that you just find yourself suspended on your back with my head facing the kitchen glass doors in the hall. My feet are where the bedroom stroke study was. I, I, I awoke and I realized what on earth is going on. And then I felt this force pulling me towards the kitchen door and I started to panic thinking, well, I can't move. I'm awake. What on earth is going on? And I go through the glass doors to the kitchen as easily as a knife going through butter. And I, and I start, I can't work out how it is that I'm able to be in this state, but being conscious at the same time, I can't move, but I'm being drawn. Then through the kitchen, I can see the dog asleep in the corner who did or did not react to me. I'm then being pulled through the kitchen doors that leads to the conservatory and then through the conservatory doors out into the garden. And as I come out into the garden, I am stunned to find that I'm now being arched upwards. So I'm no longer on my back. I'm being arched upwards, but still floating three feet off the ground. And when I look up into the sky, um, I can see all these lights moving very quickly through the sky. And I knew that they were UFOs, what people called UFOs, and realizing, my God, they're real. They're, they're actually real. They're, they're here. But there was one object that was stationary in the night sky, and I could see it because where the others that were lit up seemed to be illuminating the uh, outer rim of this larger craft that appeared a dirty gray in color. As soon as I looked at it or made contact or visual contact with it, I then found myself being pulled towards it so fast that I, I it was like being on a roller coaster and then there was a uh, a blank in memory because the next part is uh, the most disturbing part to this experience. There are two more parts. I wake up, again waking up, in this, what I can only describe as a, a lab or a, some kind of operating facility. It's quite dim um, and it's quite hot. And I, I wake up confused and dazed, not knowing where I am and realizing that I'm strapped to what I can only describe as some kind of bed or a medical bed. I am naked. I've got no clothes on, but it's so hot and I, I'm starting to panic because um, two things happen simultaneously. When I looked to my right of where I was laying, there was what I could only describe as um, three reptilians. They were very tall, quite muscular, but they, their features were quite dark and they appeared to be in this mist or this very dense fog. And they were doing something very strange. They were moving from left to right in this strange gait. Someone said to me, is it some kind of ritualistic thing? I have no idea. All I can tell you is that I panicked when I saw them because this feeling of complete... Uh, no empathy, no love, no understanding. And then I realized that there was something that had been inserted into me, into the lower part of the anatomy. I'm not going to go into detail here, but it felt organic within the bowel or the maybe the lower stomach. It was in the lower part. I could feel it. And immediately I started to scream and yell because I wanted these things to take this thing out of me. Now, let me just explain here that when you find yourself in a situation that is completely so far removed from anything that you're ordinarily able to understand in this reality, 
this is horrifying because it felt to me uh, like rape. And, you know, this is, this is something that really had a profound effect upon me, not only emotionally, but also psychologically, because I don't understand what these beings are, where they've come from, and certainly what they're doing or the, the process of why they've got this thing in me. Well, I, I scream and I yell and I shout and I'm hot. I think my throat started to hurt. And immediately, I would, people have said, how long? Well, how long is a piece of string? I, I must have been screaming probably for about a minute, which for me was like an eternity. And immediately I saw this sm small gray, what they call a gray, appear, but it was more cream colored than a gray. It appeared ahead of me because there appeared to be another partition to wherever I was that, that I couldn't see, but there was some light coming from it. But this, the area that I was in was a little bit darker and it just appeared and, and came towards me. And when I looked, the three reptilians had gone and immediately the device that was inserted to the lower part of the anatomy was being removed electronically. Nothing moved it, it just felt like it was moving on its own and came out. I don't know where it went, it seemed to go across the floor. And this cream colour grey immediately ordered me to dress. It, the, the straps were released and I felt relieved. Now, you know, people have said to me, well, you know, the grey saved you. No, I don't think it did. I think it was just doing what it had to do, which was to get me out of there. Maybe I was an embarrassment. I don't know. But I dressed and I followed it forward and around the corner to this, what I could only describe as a corridor. And the corridor came to an end. There were lights above me. It was still misty, so I couldn't see where the lights emanated from. We came to a wall, what I thought was a wall. And the Grey's standing there looking at me, and I'm looking at the Grey thinking, what the hell is going on? I, I got to get out of here. And immediately, the what I thought was a wall parted, and there was the village from a height, but it was it was it was very early morning. You know when it's early, so early morning, probably about five o'clock in the morning, six o'clock in the morning. I could see my house from above, and I could also see that where our conservatory was from below, there seemed to be another object above uh, next to it. And I thought, I'm freaking out here. This is this is not happening. I mean, what the hell is going on? And this grey wants me to leave, and I'm like, well, how do you want me to leave? And I start to get upset, start to cry, because I can't jump, I, I've got a fear of heights. And immediately I felt a push, and I felt myself floating through the air, and coming down towards the ground where this other last part transpired. There were two greys, one on my left, one on my right, but I was told not to look at them. I wasn't to look back, and I thought that was very strange considering I'd seen one of these things on the, what I supposed was a craft. When I came down to the ground, and the greys obviously had gone, in front of me was something very shocking, and something that really has ingrained within my psyche. Um, it was another grey, the last one that I was to see. But this one was more muscular, it was more human looking, where its chin was, it was quite pointed. It had large uh, black eyes. It wore a one-piece uniform with knee-length boots. And it wore this peculiar pointed hat on its head. Now, I'd seen this years later in an illustration that some artists have done with two skiers in, I believe it was Switzerland. They could be in matched the description, sorry, but 
the one I saw was taller, the one that they saw in Switzerland or Iceland, I can't remember, I'm sorry. It was a lot smaller than what I saw, but anyway, he was standing there. He looked very smart and familiar for some reason. I don't know where I recalled him from, but he had his arms folded across his chest in a threatening manner. So he puffed up his chest like he was really angry with him. His face was very annoyed. He looked very angry, and I felt like I'd been hit in the stomach when I saw him. Hmm. And I wanted to punch him. I wanted to punch him because I thought, well, you're angry with me. I don't understand what the hell is happening here. You know, you've done you've done this to me, and now you're here and you're looking angry at me. And my mind was trying to work out, I need to ask this thing a question. I need to ask it something. I need it to tell me something of what, that this is real. This is really happening to me. And then a, a light bulb hit in my head, and I thought, well, maybe he can answer the question of how the hell I'm able to get through solid matter. I mean, how is that possible? Yeah. And the central theme of this occurring, of physically seeing it, and then this other part, and I'll get to that point in a moment, when people say non-physical part. Well, I said to him, in my mind, I guess I was talking, but it was coming through his mind, how the hell am I able to get through locked and bolted doors? I mean, how is that possible? And immediately his expression changed to shock. And he looked at me, and if you'd ever seen animated plastic move, it's quite frightening. And I have endearingly named him Noddy, uh, which uh, is the character that Enid Blyton, the late Enid Blyton here in England, created, although he was very different from Noddy. It was his hat, I think, that made me think of that. But he looked shocked, and then he started to speak. But then it came out in a rasping electronic voice. It reminded me of the voice, the size that we had for our ZX81 when they came out on the market. Um, and it was mechanical and rasping, but also it was coming out with an unintelligible language. And then he raised his head very slowly to the underneath of, of this smaller craft. And I then found myself crashing through the, the glass to the conservatory all the way through to the kitchen doors, all the way through the hall, and then bang, I came back in my body. Now, as soon as I came back in my body, I woke up and I had a nosebleed to the, the right nostril. I had to go and sort myself out, but I have pains to the lower part. In the morning, I told my brother everything, and he examined me, and we found three triangular marks behind my right ear that we tried to photograph with a Polaroid instant developing camera. The, the image wouldn't come out. I had three marks on my right arm and I had profusive nosebleeds for two years from the right, right nostril. And this was going to be cauterized, but then the doctors realized that it had stopped after a while, after two years. I didn't tell them at that point that I'd had an abduction with alien beings, and of course I found it hard to walk. Now, bearing in mind, years later, what's very interesting about this, this then led me to an understanding and a component, a theoretical component, which seemed to piece a part of this puzzle together. Um, I did not, at that point, claim that I had been abducted by aliens. In fact, I didn't understand what the hell was going on. And I kept thinking, well, didn't abductions happen on a physical level of reality? That's what we were led to believe until you start digging into the phenomena and finding out the truth of what's going on. What's interesting, another researcher, um, brilliant researcher here by the name of Pierre Sabac, um, he's into a lot of the uh, scriptures and the ancient languages and, of course, symbolism. And he pointed out to me that did I not realize that what Noddy was doing at the last part, when he looked up 
underneath the, uh, the, the bottom of his craft and started to talk unintelligibly, was doing the same as what my brother had done in the kitchen when he had also raised his head up to the ceiling and said something that didn't make any sense to me. So this other research is understanding that this force or this intelligence behind it was somehow trying to scramble reality or disable reality while it came in. Um, I then um, got with a UFO group um, because it, during that time there wasn't really many people that you could get close to. I also joined the Whitley Strieber's Communion Network and was in contact with a lot of people from America, from your great country, uh, passing letters to one another. I mean, okay, some of them were really kooky mm -hmm. and out there. <laughs> you know, you, um, we were always uh, respectful of them, but some of them were like really wild and wacky. And during this period of time, there was no real emphasis or understanding with regards to the abduction phenomena other than Whitney Strieber's communion. He, he brought a greater understanding of this when his abduction occurred. And I, you know, and I do understand where the man's coming from. But what's strange is that this then led me on this quest to find out what had happened to me. Why were there two components to this? One was physical, one was non-physical, which led me then in 1996 to, um, have some kind of download. I've never had a download before. I assume it's what they call a download. Um, it's the definition. It certainly fits most of what people say when they have some kind of enlightenment or a feeling of like they have an answer to something they've been trying to work out for many years. It just comes out in a flash or a bang. Mm -hmm. I'd been at work at this time in 1996 and, and I saw the greys, as they're called, um, and the, what I assumed had been their modus operandi, and that they, a faction of them were not what we thought they were. I typed this all up and I submitted it to uh, a well-known magazine during that time called Alien Encounters that published it as a, a revolutionary speculation surrounding the abduction hypothesis. And the uh, theoretical aspect to that dealt with um, the soul and the inherent dangers of cloning and what the greys may represent beyond this level of physicality, as it were. Can we go back was, a little bit? I, I have some questions. I don't mean to interrupt, but I have a bunch of questions. I don't want to forget them. Um, so the first sighting was, I think, 82. You were around 13. This actual abduction was 89, so I guess you were 20, I think you said? Correct. Okay. Um, and so... Uh, you had talked about that there was a mist that was sort of surrounding the reptilians, but there was also a yes. mist in the rest of the ship. Was it a different sort of mist or was it the, the, the same kind of mist throughout? No, I think it was, I feel or think it was a different type of mist. The mist, you know, when it's really hot, like you're in a sauna, sure. sometimes you get that kind of like that, that it's like so hot that you can see the heat around you. Yeah. The oppressor. Yeah. yeah. That's what it was like where I was laying. But where the reptilians were, the mist seemed to be a lot more heavier around them. I've never understood why that was. I could see them. Um, their features were horrific. And this is something else that I suffered with um, because within the UFO department, um, the reptilians were very rarely mentioned. They didn't seem to fit into the current curriculum of ufology. The greys did. And would you believe it, and I'll just state this before I forget here, many years later when I had a publisher 
and he'd published a, a psychic book of mine called Reaching for the Divine. This was by Kappelbaum Publishing Limited here in London. They published, printed loads of my body and spirit books. But this particular book I wrote was called Believe, Bridging the Gap Between the Psychic and UFO Phenomena. And I had included the abduction in that book. But the publisher contacted me and said, Philip, I'll publish your book, but, you know, for reputation's sake, we're going to have to admit the part where you have the intrusive investigation and with the reptilians. Now, in that point, in that time, you didn't argue with the publisher. I could have said no and then not get the book printed. I relented. But the other thing, interesting thing, is that I wondered why it was that we weren't allowed to mention these reptilians. And they are still a mystery. I have no idea. I mean, I have a few, I, I have a few ideas. But um, so that, that I just wanted to put that point in there. I mean, I've written about it now because um, I'm no longer affi uh, affiliated with the publishing company that published my other books. But sure, that, that, that is the, the, the answer to your question there, Jeff, with regards to the mist. Okay, and the reason I was asking is I was wondering if they were, if they had different atmospheres, and it sounded like maybe they did. Um, and I guess then the, the question is, do you think they were working together, or do you think that somehow the reptilians um, sort of, uh, I don't know, uh, got on board unauthorized, brought their atmosphere with them. And then when they sort of got tripped an alarm or whatever, and the gray came in, they left and took their atmosphere with them? Or was that atmosphere sort of the mist there? In other words, did they, did they share the vessel and they it was adapted for their I, different uses? I understand. I see where you're coming from. My idea, although I can't prove it, was that they were sharing the same environment. That is the way I got it. Okay. I'm also wondering why the reptilians, it was uh, controversial to the publisher, but we, we can circle back to that. Um, the other question, you said that they communicated with you, or, or usually it was the greys that communicated with you. It sounds like you just felt the malevolence from the reptilians, but the greys could actually communicate with you. Now, was was this, did they speak? Was it telepathy? Was it you just sort of understood what they were saying? Um, you know, at some point, one of them, you felt a push, I, I, I guess they shoved you or, or at least the, the I'll, I'll just call it tractor beam caught you or whatever, but you know, elaborate a little bit on the, on the form of communication. Well, that is very interesting. Um, you know, people say, oh, I got it all worked out. It was telepathy. What is telepathy? What does that yeah. feel like? Well, to be honest with you, during that point, it felt like I heard the words within my mind. It was like having a normal conversation, but I didn't need to speak. It was almost like I was being understood and I understood it. It was like this uh, connection, um, the order to dress and to follow it. I mean, it was quite cold within its approach. Um, and then, you know, wanted me to get out, you know, like I, I was no longer of any service to them. I mean, that was charming. Now I could joke about it all these years later. Um, but it was very strange, especially when Noddy didn't communicate with me. He didn't communicate with me at all. And any psychologist is always because you're, you have problems with communication. No, that is absolutely rubbish. I am one of the most, you know, approachable and communicatable human beings on this planet. So it was all, it was more like a knowing or like someone speaking to you and like, you know, you've, you've heard them. You know, like sometimes where you've been asleep. And you're just in between that state where you sometimes can hear a voice or a voice in your head. Have you ever had that before? Yeah, I'm sure I have. Yeah, it's sort of like twilight. Yeah, so it's kind of like that feeling without any mouth moving you can hear. But the, the, the dialogue or the way that the 
entity communicated, the cream grey, was very cold. It was very flat. It held no emotion whatsoever. It was just like, you know, mechanical in nature. Um, and uh, But I'm not saying that these things are robots. I know people say, all oh, their machines are robots. They've got it all worked out. We just don't know. I've got a different approach to that. But that's how I, that's how I felt it, yeah. Okay. And two, one more. So... They were the the first gray, which was sort of a I'll just call it a, a, a survival suit, for lack of a better term, that helped it go through the. Uh, the oh, that's uh, interesting. The the permeated or hey, you know, I'll just call it like the Stargate when they changed the the flux of matter in 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 the home. Um, and he was you said about three feet tall, and then you saw another one that was much much larger, more robust, and uh, apparently knew you and was dis- displeased that you describe him as naughty. I remember Naughty, or at least the American version of Naughty. Not for me, but for for when my my kids were little. Naughty was like an annoying little elf kind of thing. This this doesn't sound like an elf. This sounds like a, a pretty big scary scary dude. But my 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 question is: Do you think that th- these are two different types of greys, or the same gray, just sort of different ranks or or roles, almost like a you know, not to assign gender to it, but like a queen bee and worker. Bees or queen ant and worker ants have different shapes, but they're the same species. I have no idea, Jeff. To me, <laughs> the path to the abduction with regards to the being coming through the door that was clad in black, three feet tall, diminutive, wearing what I assume was some kind of like, at that time, I can only describe as like a motorcycle helmet because it was bigger than its body. It wasn't a motorcycle helmet. It's the um, only definition I could use to describe sure. it. Um, the reptilians, dear God, I mean, you know, what can you say about them? I mean, I had a hard time dealing with that myself, but I can only report the facts as they occurred. I won't embellish or add or subtract anything, but they were pretty mean and they were horrible. And I will say this again, you know, when you are in the presence of this type of uh, intelligence, you are disarmed. They are in control. They, it's almost as if you're a slab of meat. You are nothing to them. They have no pity it's it's yeah, just a horrible feeling they, you're they, helpless it's like you're all, you're all you're utterly vulnerable and utterly at their mercy and especially if they seem like they have no mercy it's you know that that's that's got to be terrifying as well when you're in this situation yes it was because uh, there's no way of measuring the um anguish or the pain and i'm not one of these people that's after sympathy the experience happened it left physical marks the marks behind my right ear dissipated after some time although the ones on my right arm are still fairly visible um you know and and this whole thing about the nosebleeds but what's interesting is that in later years i had a problem with my right ear and people say to me no did that happen I'm like yes it did happen I went to the doctors and I was didn't want to say to them I think there's something alien in my right ear you know you're going to say to your doctor oh, I think I've been abducted by aliens doctor and I think there's something in my right ear right I wanted to see what they could see so the first time I went the doctor kept looking in there and said oh there's to know it looks like there's uh, a block in there but um you know, anyway, I'm sure you'll be okay. Left it. Second time I went, the doctor had a good look, a different doctor, because here in England we are sometimes assigned different doctors. We're not assigned one doctor. The other doctor looked in and ummed and ahed and left it. And I thought on the third time, which was, a, I think, a few years ago now, I was fed up. 
because this thing in my right ear, I felt it physically move back. I physically felt it move back one night, like it was pushed back. Like when I wash my ears and I use cotton buds, yeah, I, I do. I'm like that. I'm just, I just got to get my ears clean. There's something in there. So I went back to the doctors. And on this third occasion, I went in there. The doctor had a look, then another look. And then she said, can you hold on a minute? So she put the device down and she went up to go get another doctor and she came down and she had a good look. And I'm thinking, jeepers, what are they looking at? Are they, is there something wrong? Have they found, you know, alarming something that shouldn't be there, like, the, you know, the illness or something or a disease or something? And then she said, it, she said, and these were her words. I can't remember which way around she said them, what came first, but she said, it seems to have a crystalline structure and it looks like it's still healing and then as god is my witness she put the device down and walked back off to her office and i looked at the doctor in front of me the one that originally had a look and got this one and she looked at me and she said have you been abducted by aliens well i'd gone up and i felt I got up and felt kind of like, oh, that's a very strange remark to make. Yeah. And I felt a lot worse when I went back to my car. So people have said, oh, you know, well, why didn't you do this or didn't you do that? Let me explain something. When you are in a situation, you will react the way you want to react to that situation, not the way that other people expect you to react, because there could be millions of ways of reacting to an event. I thought, you know what? I'm leaving it. <laughs> that's good enough for me. Um, and ever since I, I've not been back about my ear. So that, that was the other thing about the right ear. Is this an implant? I don't know. But a part of my mind in the back of my head is thinking, well, if there was a crystalline structure to it, and if it looked like it was still healing, that would warrant you to be sent to the hospital to go to an ear specialist who would then have a good look and see what's in there. That didn't happen. So... I don't know, Jeff. That is uh, that's what happened <laughs> wow. years later. Yeah, that, that, I mean, the, and the doctors, uh, or at least one of well, they seemed to know exactly what they were looking at and uh, were very matter of fact about it. Um, going back to the, the the different forms of the uh, the beans, was could you tell who was in charge, or was that not clear? It may. It felt to me. Um, that the one, the noddy that I call at no. the end was the one that had been very much in charge. Let me just reiterate here. I mean, when he was standing there with his uh, legs slightly apart, with his one-piece uniform and his knee-length boots and uh, his uh, uh, incredible hat that was quite pointed, I mean, I thought, who would wear a thing like that? That's ridiculous, you know? But it seemed to be smart. It seemed to be set within the attire of its uh, uniform. But with his arms folded, so threatening across the base of uh, his chest, and his, his anger, anger, his eyes, like they were really scolding into mine. Um, he definitely, I think, was in charge. But I, I did, although I can't uh, prove this, I did feel that he seemed on some level separate from the other ones. I, I have no idea. And I'm like to myself, you know, how ridiculous is this? But the whole event happened. It actually occurred, and I record every detail, bar from the moment where I had gone closer to the uh, the craft that was stationary, and then blacked out. So I don't know what happened in between that time. Um, I have no understanding of what happened. So that's the way, and you know, 
I'm more now involved in the theoretical content and the application of the abduction phenomena, but painfully I have to go back to that episode. And sure. one of the things that I found really difficult, as did the publisher, um, during that time, um, it was, was it 2009, the book was set to come out. And that's when John Day from Kappelband Publishing, who has now sadly passed over, um, he brought out several of my books. I was very honoured, told me that we had to retract that, that part. Why? I don't know. But interestingly now, you know, a lot of this information is coming out about, about the reptilians. My research has been mainly on the greys. I mean, my understanding of the reptilians was that they are cold. Um, I mean, if they're running the show, God help us. Um, but I don't know, Jeff. I'm just as mystified as anyone. I, I'm not going to say it was this or that. Now, what's interesting as well is that if you go to the Betty and Barney Hill UFO abduction that happened to them in New Hampshire, mm -hmm in 1961, right. they had one part of the experience was a physical interaction or, uh, of a UFO, and then the second part of the uh, process was through the abduction, came through dream state. Now, mine did come through dream state, but this is interesting because it appears that the phenomena seems to integrate itself on a personal level of the human psyche. Um, it's not just the viewing of a UFO that comes in and the UFO seems to distort space and time, but then there's, a, I believe, another part where it then integrates or the intelligence behind it integrates on a much deeper level of the psyche. And this may lead us into certain areas of uh, understanding quantum consciousness uh, and certainly where these beings may or some of them may come from. So this is, this is where fascinating uh, in its uh, symmetry of where I'm being led at the moment. But I won't detract too far into that at the moment. <laughs> okay. Well, let's go back to, I, I had some, I mean, it, it occurred to me when you said that um, Nadi seemed a little bit apart from the others and you keep going back to his hat. And the first thing that came to me is so, something trite. When, when I used to be a boss, my, my then assistant would say to me, you know, heavy is the head upon which rests the crown. And I'm thinking maybe if Nadi was in charge, maybe that that uh, conical or, or pointed hat is, was a form of a crown, and uh, maybe he was apart, uh, you know, from the others, and uh, maybe he was sort of set apart because uh, he or she was sort of the boss, and th th things didn't go exactly well, and maybe some of that was because of the way that you reacted. They didn't go exactly according to plan. Maybe it was supposed to be a, a dream state, but but they caught you awake. Um, uh see what yeah. you mean or, or maybe you know if i remember the hills i think were older and maybe you know uh yes. older people you know younger person 20 has a lot of energy and you know maybe you were physically stronger so uh it was harder to catch you in dream sleep um whereas with older people my age or older maybe maybe it's a, a little bit harder to rouse us or a little bit easier to keep us uh, down i don't I, that's just some knee-jerk you know things that came to my mind but one thing that what you said sent shivers up my arms and, and you know, the hackles the back of my neck. And you said that there was something about studying cloning. Well, you have a twin brother and something happened to him as well. I mean, do you, do you think that the cloning and the fact that your twins made you targets? 
That is a good question, and I've always stated that we're all important. Uh, you know, people are singled out perhaps for certain reasons. We're not sure, but it appears that way. Um, certainly, the idea of the cloning or the aspect of cloning um, came to be in the vision that I had or the download in 1996. Vision sounds a little bit too, um, you know, awe-inspiring. It was more of a knowing that came in a flash of inspiration. Um, but it certainly taught me perhaps a lot more about what a certain faction of the Greys are and their modus operandi and the dangers, the inherent dangers of cloning with regards to human consciousness, memory and the soul. And it would appear through my uh, understanding to a, a small part of this is that is it possible that the Greys have cancelled themselves out through, the, through their replication program and that they're interested in us as a sentient life form that has a natural sojourn with the soul. Now, my twin brother had uh, an experience seven years before mine in 1982, and bearing in mind that we are seven minutes apart, I don't think there's any relevance to, relevance to that at all. <laughs> but yes. it occurred in 1982, and at that time, I'll just give a brief description. Um, when we were younger, we moved to South Africa. We lived out in South Africa, and then we came back to England. And when we came back to England, um, when we were roughly around about eight years of age, uh, seven going on to eight, we lived in Luton. And Luton was a very different place than what it is now. We lived in concrete jungles. We lived in a big Victorian house. And in 1982, my brother had an experience, and I recalled it very interestingly, although I didn't see what happened. Very rare that another person gets to see an abduction taking place. And there, are, there have been some famous cases, of course. But ordinarily, this intelligence has knocked the other person out. And that is provable. There was another situation with me, not with an abduction, but what happened where I couldn't wake someone up when something weird was going on. So my brother in 1982 and I shared a bedroom in this Victorian house. We were 13 years of age. And this was in the winter. So this was the same year uh, that we had seen the strange orb in the garden with our grandmother, our maternal grandmother. So that winter, my brother described, um, the only way he could uh, ex uh, explain it was that he found himself being lifted off his bed, going through the ceiling, could see the loft, because we very rarely went into the loft and there was much in there, went through the loft and he was in a dark sky and he could see this very dark object. I mean, he could tell it to you at some point, but he, he couldn't see a sh define a shape, so it's not like it was circular or triangular, he couldn't tell. But he knew it was there because it was dark. And the next thing that happened was that he blanked out. He then found himself, and I've got this right because, you know, it's never left my mind, sitting in a modern wheelchair. And he is in a room that looks like a medical facility. And ahead of him is a medical bed with three doctors standing in front of this bed. But the doctors are completely clad in uniform. They're tall humanoids, but their faces are covered by some, what he called were like the old World, World War II masks with the protruding eyes but, and the, the bit here like around. But he's tried to compose it through his art. He said he could never get it right because, you know, he just, it's the only way he can describe it. They were from head to toe in uniform. And they appeared to be waiting for him. Now, while he was sitting in this wheelchair, he felt the presence of someone behind him who was obviously got hold of the wheelchair. And we're talking about a modern device here of a wheelchair. He described it um, as being very ultra-modern. And they, he could see some instruments to his, I think it was his left. 
and the, the guy behind him, and it was a guy because he spoke, said, um, we're going to perform an operation on you, Ronald. And as soon as he mentioned Ronald's name, my brother stiffened because he knew that the guy knew who he was. And the, the voice came across as assertive, as warm, as friendly. And um, my brother begged and said no, he didn't want the operation. And the man behind him, the voice said, no, it, it has to be done. It's for your own good. We need to do this. And then the person behind him, we called him person, he could see him and he wished he'd counted his digits on his hand, <laughs> had placed this instrument on the top of his left hand. And immediately my brother went out like a light. Now, my brother's never had an operation until recently, and he was shocked to discover that in the procedure, they put the um, anesthetic, or whatever they call it, into that area of the hand. And he was shocked because it brought back even more memories of what happened to him back then. Now, there's another part to this. He blacked out. The next thing that he recalled was coming through, back through the loft and back down through the ceiling into the bed. And as he was coming back down, he noticed this zoom, 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 like this throbbing sound that seemed to surround his body, although he swore blind that didn't happen when he was being taken up. And he knew that it had happened because when he made contact with the bed very gently and he was there, he started to panic. Now, the next part was very weird, although he now believes he understands why it was done. The only way I could describe it was the image of the Cheshire cat that appeared as what he described as like a kind of like a hologram on the ceiling. And it was so horrific that it scared the crap out of my brother. And then that was it. Now, interestingly, not long after this had happened, we went to the same school. Stockwood High School in Luton and we were in a geography class and my brother started to fit he's never had a fit in his life and he fitted for about three minutes I think it was it was quite shocking there to open up the, the window in the, the classroom and he was taken out and then taken to the uh, have a doctor's area you know like a, a medical center in the school and they asked him look do you, are you feeling better now my brother was so shocked and, he said, and they said, we'll have to send you to the doctors. And he was petrified, saying, no, I don't want to go to the doctors. I don't want to see the doctors. I'm going to be okay. So the question is, two things happened simultaneously. The image of the Cheshire cat was what he calls the doctor's insurance policy. So that if my brother would go to any psychologist and tell them of the encounter and explain about the Cheshire cat, they would immediately say, oh, you've been watching too many episodes of Alice in Wonderland. That's what's happened. So he believes that the doctors have put this image up as kind of like a blank or, a, sorry, say a blanket as a form of insurance to say, hey, you've been down the rabbit hole. But his attack or um, his fit that he had, we are wondering whether or not that the doctors had actually saved his life, that perhaps in some ways if something uh, else had occurred, he may be dead today. We don't know. That's just supposition. So but it's interesting, isn't it? Did he ever have any of the same issues that you had with the uh, bleeding nose and the right nostril or any of the similar situation with the, having his ear examined? No, not at all. I mean, the only thing that happened to him was the fit, and that was quite traumatic enough, but we didn't relate it to the, uh, to the experience that he had until many years later when we seemed to click and think, hey, you know you had that fit? 
do you think it was somehow connected with those guys that had taken you? Um, so it's an interesting point. I mean, I, I seem to suffer more under the hands of these antagonists more than my brother because they, he believes, came across as quite friendly, although he's very scared. Remember, he was 13 at the time and I was 20 at the time with mine. So we're not sure. And, you know, there may have been, I may have had two other experiences of what we call abductions, but I will, I can't and won't report anything because I have no memory. The only memory I have is that some years ago, I woke up in bed three o'clock in the morning. There were lights that seemed to just go out above the house. There was a roaring sound. I went to the bathroom. My bladder was bursting. And then I found that my North American t-shirt was back to front so that the, the, the back of it was so high up that I knew that you can't put that on the wrong way. So did something happen? I don't know. And just re recently, not long ago, there is something else that occurred um, uh, where the, my clock had lost an hour. It was working perfectly fine. And I have burn, burn marks across the lower part of my chest. So did something happen? I don't know. And I'm not one of these people to claim, oh, I'm a continuous abductee. But I know that something weird happened. And it's not because you're wanting to put the pieces together to say, oh, I've been abducted by aliens. It's because of the level of high strangeness that comes with it. And having uh, a mind that is certainly, you know, grounded, if I may say that. I don't deal with any fanciful nonsense or rubbish. But there again, I am now a victim because I have been down that rabbit hole, you see. And, um, you know, but I try to analyze and look at things in the most uh, logical way. But when you're dealing with this subject matter, you get to the fringe of everything becoming illogical and not making sense. But there are patterns with people's abductions, the same as there are with people's NDEs or near-death experience. We can at least try to measure the, the, the uh, experiences by analyzing data and formulating conclusions. And I've, you know, I've moved away now from the abductions and more into the uh, scientific and theoretical aspects of contact. That doesn't make me an expert because there's no expert because we don't know what we're dealing with, but we're allowed to work on theoretical models in establishing what we may be dealing with. Um, but yes, I mean, I had to deal with that, especially when mainstream media got involved and just recently as well. Sure. Um, they, they kind of put you in this bracket, but I've learned and I've grown from that. So, you know, I understand the mechanism of the machinery behind the media and how they operate and uh, also what we're fighting towards disclosure. So, you know, it's kind of like going down that rabbit hole, isn't it, uh, Jeff? Oh, yeah. And just so the audience gets some grounding, because I'm not, I'm not sure when I'm going to drop the recording, um, but it we are not far away from the Pentagon acknowledging that there are what they call unidentified unidentified aerial phenomena. There was the 73 page report where I think nine pages were a summary where they identified about 140 or so um, encounters. Uh, they were able to eliminate, I think about nine as, as or, or explain nine and the rest they couldn't explain. And also right around now, um, both Netflix and the Showtime or Stars had docu-series uh, you know, so right now, UFO and UFOlogy is hot. Uh, I think it's Showtime. They had a, a four-part docuseries on Netflix had, I think they called it Deep 
classified UFO, but it was a six-part series. Of course, it's Netflix. You could watch it all in one day, or you could watch it over the course of you know three years if you wanted to. Um, but you know, it's a hot topic right now. Uh, I personally think it's going to be get get only hotter uh, because you know once you start getting drips of information, you you know drips usually lead to a, a more solid stream. But all right, but away from me and back to to you. I, well, on your brother, I've. If if I was him, I think I'd have my ears looked at just to just to see. But that's that's neither here nor there. Um, uh, but uh, I don't know exactly where to start. So how how do you make the transition into researcher, and and how do you start that journey? Like like you know, I, obviously, I, I know that mentally you have to get yourself at a point where okay, this happened. I need to focus on something. So this is what I'm going to focus on um, and do something productive with it. But like, how do you actually, what's your first step in researching? Do you try to find other people and interview them? Or like, you know, what, 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 do, you, yeah. what, what do you do? Uh, how, how do you go, I'm going to research this. And how do you, you know, start, you know, making your business plan to, well, to become a researcher? To begin with, I started to examine other cases. And this had been prevalent after the um, so-called abduction, and I say so-called because we still don't know what it is. People profess this and that, but I think we're still in the early stages of trying to truly establish what we are up against. I started to research by buying books and reading other cases, then I joined the UFO group, and then I started to link with other people. Some people you connect with, other people you don't. Some people have all the answers. Um, I'm not so sure about that, and some people are so rigid within their belief system. I'm very open to all forms of speculation. This then led to me really digging into the phenomena. I mean, you know, trying to go to the library to get press cuttings of old UFO cases, trying to look into the historical areas of certain areas of why UFOs have seen mostly and in other areas not. And this then led into the connection with other researchers and reading their work and sharing ideas. And, and this is how it evolved. I mean, I went out looking for it. In those days, you didn't have the internet, and you've got to be careful about what you're looking at on the internet because there's a lot of untruths and disinformation online. But a lot of the good cases were from the old days, you know. That's why I used to, and I still collect the old 1970s sphere UFO books, 1980s sphere books, and a lot of the brilliant researchers there. Um, I will warn you that when you are starting to look into this, you definitely do go deeper down that rabbit hole that Alice in Wonderland went down, <laughs> because then you're dealing with a lot of people that's connected with uh, psyops and military operations, and of course this did my head in, like, oh my God, what, what, what am I getting myself involved in here? I had an abduction, I can only report the facts as I see the facts. And um, we've seen UFOs in close range, which were reported in the press. And that did little for your reputation, especially when you were a writer, um, because a lot of the media want you to be a blank canvas, like having no brain. They don't want you to be an articulate person. And when you are, they can fire at you and say, oh, he's a writer, or he's imaginative, he's written science fiction and children's, you know. And this, this just was so, to me, damaging. And so I, I will tell you, I spent a lot of time after the abduction seriously contemplating um, 
what had happened and why that society was so against it. If you even mentioned UFOs, you were laughed at. You know, I was born in that that time when any mention of it would would uh, you know resounding sniggering and laughter and woo 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 this type of thing. And you were I've never worn a tin hat in my life. I must try it sometime. It might help a bit more. But you know, you you do read you do also meet a lot of people who will tell you it as it is. And you know, I have been very honoured, uh, very honoured indeed. Um, you know, to have been connected when you earn your stripes um, through integrity and honesty um, of dealing with some of the world's finest minds, uh, scientists, and um, you know, these some of these guys are so involved in this um, subject matter, and other researchers. Of course, we're affiliated with the wonderful Philip Mantle, who has been a, a great inspiration to me and my twin brother, and um, you know. Kathleen Marden for the United States has been an invaluable source of, of connection and many other researchers, um, to name but a few. I'm not a name dropper, but I'm just more honoured and uh, so humbled that, you know, to be connected with these brilliant minds so we all come together and try and work it out. Um, so this is, this is how it led. It, and also, uh, there seemed to be a lot of synchronicity that was connected with this because when I had got involved with um, a lot of UFO research, <laughs> I then found myself in Rendlesham and then meeting the uh, co-author to the original book that came out back in 1984 by Neville Spearman called Sky Crash Cosmic Conspiracy by Jenny Rendles, a famous British ufologist here, uh, Brenda Butler and Dot Street. And it was Brenda Butler who I met at Rendlesham and we decided to co-author a book called Sky Crash Throughout Time, a bit naughty nicking their original title, but we changed the subtitle, which the publishers brought out in 2013, which was a continuation of the strange phenomena of UF activity in Rendlesham, not just the 1980 event, but also those before and afterwards. And that book met with a lot of backlash um, because people were expected to read about the 1980 event. But Philip Mental is re-releasing that book um, next year, because it's no longer available from Capital I think they published it in 2013, and it got slated because there's some incredible information about a reptilian man in there that was linked with Brenda Butler and not me, and who had also infiltrated a lot of military and ufological individuals. Um, and that's in there. And um, even connected with Ralph Noyes, former um, head of the MOD, Ministry of Defence, uh, who met him and demonstrated bringing three UFOs to him. <laughs> so, you know, this, this is incredible stuff, and, and you find yourself thinking, oh, my God, I'm, I'm, what's going on? So I think that also there appears to be some kind of synchronicity with each of us, well, I think, on a personal level. Just, just so that the audience knows, in case they don't know what Rendlesham is, it, it, I mean, it's the name of a town, but there's also an Air Force base there, and... and, and for a while, maybe still, it was a, at least partly a U.S. Air Force, Force base, and it's sort of considered Britain's uh, Area 50, 51. And I mean, if you just you know Google it, you'll you'll be connected to some YouTube videos or you know documentaries on uh, what had happened at, at Rendlesham. But um, it you know uh, there's there's the one famous incident, but uh, the, on some of the stuff I've seen that there's you know it it. There's the one famous incident, but it, it's not isolated, which you're more or less corroborating. 
Yes, and also the events themselves are multifaceted. We had performed an experiment there on the 8th of June 1998 at exactly 10.15 p.m. at night, and we had initiated what we didn't even realize was what would be called later a CE5 initiative, and it worked. So this led me into more of the connection with consciousness or human consciousness and how certain um, you know, alternative dimensions of awareness are able to interact with us. Uh, and this this was something that was incredible. And people say to you, you know, this is what really annoys me, Jeff. Where's your proof? Well, even if I brought a piece of the Roswell material right now in front of someone who was a disbeliever and put it in their hand, they'd still look at it and say, mm, okay, but can you prove this is from Roswell? So this whole proof thing, Unfortunately, the phenomena operates on parallels that gives very little proof. And a brilliant British researcher and author, a good uh, friend of ours, Paul Sinclair, writes these truth proof books, which are brilliant. And he is of the same uh, opinion that this, this phenomenon gives very little in the way of evidence. And this is interesting because it appears that the intelligences behind it does not want full interaction with us on a united scale. It is after what it can get from us, of what it wants. Um, and this is why, you know, our main understanding of how they get to us seriously now needs to be brought into consideration because we're looking at in terms of the way that humans think. We're not thinking of how an alien will think or where they come from. And and I'm I'm absolutely of the opinion that certain crafts, as we call them, are able to interact within our uh, reality uh, by way of, um, you know, consciousness, that they are able to interact with our human consciousness, disable us, disable the people around us. And to us, it's very real. Of course it is, because they're stepping in and stepping back out of this reality, rather like a person who dies and reports another world and comes back again. And explaining that the world that they left behind, as I said before, was more real than the one they left that, that they were in. Do you think that the uh, the the folks that your brother encountered, who uh, I think you described they were in World War One outfits with sort of the gas masks on, um, do you think that they were one of this, the the Greys uh, or the reptilians? And let's just assume for the moment that Nadi and the Greys belong to are, are the same race. Uh, do you think that they were one of the two or that they represent a third distinct uh, race? We don't know. We have no idea okay. because they were fully covered and there was no way of identifying their true appearance whatsoever. They were taller. Yeah. Uh, my, well, my brother was 13. I mean, we're six foot, you know, so we were always tall lads. But he's saying that they were tall. Right, but um, he, he would so, know three feet versus, you know, average yeah, person yeah. height. So they were clearly not the, the, the most of the greys that you met, but the reptilians and Nadi type were both uh, humanoid yes. height, uh, you know, two meters, you know, or, 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 or less, you yeah. know, so, so something around there. Yeah. All right. Um, I, I, so at some point earlier, you had said, I don't know if this is important at this point, but you had said that there's there's an abductee, and I think the uh, term what you used was experiencer, and you also were going to get uh, sort of distinguish if you could between the the greys and the reptilian. So in whichever order you like, uh, we can cover those two things so that we don't miss them. 
Yeah, so the experiencer is someone that I understand who has continual wonderful experiences with ET contact. Um, it's very different from the abduction or the abductee because an abductee is taken against their will. So an experiencer um, obviously is someone who you know, experiences this phenomena on a different level than an abductee. Um, and most notably, an experiencer has more than one um, experience. So they, you know, you, you hear these uh, cases of them going up and meeting them and coming back down again and having a wonderful time or learning a great deal from what they can. So yeah. I can only talk yeah. on behalf of the... Yeah, sorry? Well, so from your research and your interviews, do you think the experiencers really are having a different... Objectively, if that's possible, from, from your viewpoint, are they having... A, an actual a more positive experience in the real world or is it more like I don't know any other way to describe it other than it, you know it sounds like you were you know experimented upon uh, but you were cognizant of that and that was terrifying and painful but you could be you know sort of under the the spell of the vampire and it could be just as awful but because you're <laughs> under the spell of the vampire it feels euphoric to you as you're slowly dying and being drained or or being turned and uh, yeah i don't know a better metaphor for it i'm not trying to say they're vampires but do you think that they were under some sort of they're actually having a positive experience or that they were there that's the way that they were conditioned or hypnotized whatever influenced to to recollect it versus yours, which, you know, maybe truly was terrifying, or or maybe they influenced you to, to make yours seem more terrible than was. Who knows? Maybe they're doing a behavioral experiment, you know, almost like we do with mice. But uh, um, yeah. e either way, um, uh, you know, do, do you get anything from, from your talks with those folks that leads you to believe that it's actually a truly euphoric experience or something that they, you know, or, or is it sort of like heroin? It feels like... Uh, euphoria but it's but it's you know it, it's slowly sucking the life out of them i think there are different aspects to this phenomena and this is where it gets very very complicated there are those people who claim that they are having experiences with ets all the time but perhaps they are on different states of conscious awareness and this is where we where it gets a little bit tricky because you know how do we know um how can we measure that true state of what's going on. Um, you know, there are some people who can astral project themselves, they can have remote viewing experiences. To them, they are very real experiences and they'll come back and tell you so. Um, so I think and feel that from a certain level with experiences, perhaps that there are benevolent ETs um, who do draw the energy of that individual into their circle and connect with them. But I, you know, I, I think a lot of the time I've seen some people who, you know, one lady was saying she was having a great time. She was singing and dancing on the moon and with some greys, all minus a spacesuit. So I seriously sat back trying to think, well, what's going on here? And this is where it gets very messy and muddy. Um, you know, I think by dealing with the rawness of the experience and not necessarily on a negative level, tells us a lot about what's going on especially with Betty and Barney Hill. And certainly, um, did the event that I went through, has it changed me? Well, yes, it has. For the better, yes, it has. Although I still can't understand what happened. Was it responsible in opening something in me? Perhaps it was. Maybe the fear did that. It's a very hard question to address. But I think that, you know, I had a, 
uh, I, sorry, before I say what I need to say here, I had another couple who were absolutely convinced that the only reason I had my abduction is because I'm a very negative person. Now, I'm not a negative person, but these two love and light individuals who are being abducted every day of the week uh, were proclaiming they had all the answers to everything. And I said, well, good luck. If you've got the answers to everything, then you don't need me. Um, but, you know, this is where it gets quite, quite strange. Um, but I do believe that certain people are able to connect with certain ETs on a very positive level. Um, it's just that we don't ever see them, you see. We see their crafts, but where are the aliens? You know, even mine didn't make an appearance, you know, where I could take a picture of myself with them. I'm sorry, I've got to be a bit humorous there. You know. That's fine. That where are the aliens? In the 1950s, we were told about all of these uh, space brothers, and a lot of the public were convinced that they were real, but they never made an appearance. And even if they did, uh, most of the time they were found to be models or some kind of superstar, you know, that, uh, that weren't the aliens at all. So are we dealing with elements of the, of the mind, of human consciousness? Yes, I believe that we are. But I believe that these alternative forces are very clever, that they're able to manipulate time and space and also memory uh, in most cases. And this is how they probably connect with our world through the mind. And of course, some poor people, God bless them, may, you know, believe or think that they've had such a wonderful time. And the extraterrestrials have actually got what they want from the individual. So it's a very sensitive, very delicate subject matter. But a lot of the research that I've been doing suggests that the phenomena does not always operate on a love and light aspect. There seems to be... Um, a hidden agenda, especially where certain factions of the Greys, and I have to say certain factions, because I have to be very careful, because a lot of people have their own beliefs about what's going on. Uh, but it appears to me that a certain factions of the Greys have their own agenda, and why it is that they don't want to come out into the light of day to reveal themselves, or why everything is all distorted, memory distorted in most cases, hard to recall the events. They've got what they want, and they'll continue to do so. But, you know, what are they after? And uh, this is what led me into the research or the theoretical aspect of them going through some kind of rebirthing cycle because they have counseled themselves out through the laws of replication. They have no identity. And I believe that the system that we serve at this moment with us as humans is moving us very dangerously in this way where they want us to be of one mind. They don't want us to be individual. What do you, you mean by I, the uh, laws of replication? Do you mean that they're... They're asexual? How, are they in some sort of artificial body where they can't procreate? Um, what, what, what do you mean when you say that? Well, we, as I understand it, as I believe, are born through the natural process of reproduction, inherent with memories from what we call another side. I don't believe that we live and die and that's it. I believe in a journey that goes beyond this level of reality. So we come through this loop of ingestion, of pregnancy, of birthing, these cycles of memories, things that we take for granted. Memories. Oh, I see Love. where you, I see where you're going. They, they, they say they their their souls, if we want to use that word, have they've reached the end of their of their story. Yes, it would appear it could be possible, or at least to contemplate the idea that perhaps that they have completely nullified any true essence of what they are as individuals. And that through this act of replication, they're desperate now to harvest back a new genus in order to kind of um, re 
re-engineer themselves or bring themselves back into the loop of creation. Uh, that is one possibility. It's certainly not a fact. It's something I've come out with um, back in 1996. Well, we're only talking to you today, so we only, you know, uh, obviously you're only speaking for yourself. And and by the way, anybody who's listening who's got different theories, reach out to me. I'm I'm very easy to find. I'm very responsive, and you can tell your versions uh, or your beliefs. But uh, you you don't need to qualify. We we know that you're only speaking for yourself, and you're we're only looking for your what your truth is or what your beliefs are, your opinions, you know, or, or your uh, impressions of uh, the, the, the grays, et cetera. So you did say factions, and then you were sort of, you sort of walked back. You were a little bit careful about it. Don't worry about it on my account. I'm, I'm, I'm actually okay. interested to hear what you have to say about this. And what's interesting, yeah, what's interesting also is the abduction hypothesis. I believe that what the grays are able to do is take the real essence of what you are away from its physical host, the physical body, temporarily. And when you are matched by the frequency of the grays, hey, you're in their world. They can, whatever they do to you will affect the physical counterpart. While they're like people who do absent healing, they can affect matter through the, you know, the blueprint of the real energy of the, the life form. Now, look at this. Let's look at it this way as well, too. Um, the grays, the abduction phenomena, seems to mirror the near-death experience. One is forced, well, the other is not. When someone dies, they leave their body. This has been reported. They go down a light in more cases than not. They communicate through telepathy with their loved ones. The world is more real than the one that they left behind, as I said before. What's interesting is that when they come back, they're changed, they're transformed. And even if they've suffered some kind of illness or temporary illness or terminal illness, they're healed. Now, with an abduction, it comes across as forcible. The aliens come in, they draw you into their reality, and it's interesting that they have to be, in more cases than not, uh, centralized around the individual when they're brought towards their craft. Mine, strangely, did not. There is some kind of psychic connection link between the grey and the human. They obviously need them to be aware or awake in order to perform their experiments of uh, mind control, mind connection, all this type of thing. And the other thing is the greys have no understanding of taste, of aging, of smell, of love, all these qualities that make us what we are. And I believe that they could possibly be harvesting or creating a new genus and trying to learn and figure out what it is to be alive, what it is to be a part of the greater, grander picture of creation. So we don't know. Um, we don't have all the answers. I was going to say something else there that completely... Um, I'll probably kick myself for getting to mention it about the abduction. Yeah. Also, like the mobile phone, you have the physical hardware and you have signals that you cannot see. Those signals carry information that is unique to you. And it works through your device depending on the capacity or the uh, memory capacity of your device. And your signals will quite happily deliver what it needs to, but your device will only bring through what it needs to, you know, in terms of information. There are so many applications that can be used upon your phone that's not always used. The brain, I think, works in the same way. I think consciousness uh, is connected through to this biological hardware, and it's recording from birth to death, everything that's going on. Even if there is damage or, you know, some kind of cerebral disruption, the signal or consciousness is still recording. And um, if your phone dies or it breaks, the signal will still be pure, the same as our soul consciousness through the, bios the biosphere. If the body dies, the signaling or the consciousness will return to source and probably reconnect with another 
mobile phone or another body if it wishes to, as we understand it, because the idea of reincarnation does appeal to me, although I think that's a very heavy subject, uh, but it's the only way forward for progression. So I think as a species, we tend to look at things in a very humanized way. We believe in heaven as being humanized, but we have to understand that there could be alternative levels of reality that go beyond this, this earth plane. And I believe that. Scientists are already beginning to understand that there is a fifth dimension and many more beyond that. Quite what that would be like would be quite incredible to understand. So, you know, you also get the contention that the greys are us from the future. I'm not disputing that. Um, they're androids. They could even be um, mechanisms that are utilized with the aliens from a distant dimension utilizing remote viewing and using the bodies as some kind of uh, puppet or an instrument to get through to this reality. And there's another idea that we can play around with. They're using you know, probes to probe. Yes, that's yes. And also, um, we also have to take the other slant to this that people don't like talking about, the, demon, the demonic aspect. I mean, could it be that these beings are somehow trying to loop themselves across into this reality uh, by this, uh, you know, gestation program, hybridization program, to get them into this world from theirs, like slingshotting them through. We don't know. And as I said, I'm very open to all forms of speculation, but all of them are fascinating. But I'm, I'm rather suspecting that the greys themselves are interdimensional. And this is how they connect or hijack into the human conscious system and then infiltrate themselves in through memory. And this is this is how they become real into our world temporarily before removing themselves back into their realm. So this is the way I see it. It's interesting, isn't it, Jeff? Yeah, it is. I mean, I, I actually, while you were talking earlier, way, way but back, I, I was struck by the parallels between the way people describe um, experiences with the the divine and the demonic you know is it's almost the same kind of ecstasy and agony but but the rest is you know it sort of starts and ends the same way and and it's uh, very striking so uh you know but that that's sort of a theme i come back to again and again on the show and it was certainly not intentional it just it just sort of worked out that way um but i, I want to hear a little bit more about the, this factionalization or or what what you perceived as being different factions because uh you know, you know, it, it, you know, actually, I think that adds an element of uh, groundedness to it, because if they're anything like us, you know, you, you know, you can't get a, a condo association to agree upon anything, let alone an entire people. Um, and why not be factions and, and dissent among these others as well? Um, they may have different ideas as, as to how to use us or what the purposes of these missions are, which would be consistent with some people having great experiences and some people having terrible, horrific experiences. So, what, what you know, what what's your what's your feelings? What what kind of what kind of? I don't want to put any words in your mouth or thoughts in your, you know. I mean, certainly I can put thoughts in your head that you explore later, but I don't want to influence what you're going to say. But what kind of factionalism did you? Were you left with the impression that exists? Well, the experience opened up other areas of investigation into the afterlife of the soul of consciousness. 
And there was a need for me to do that when so several people died. And what's interesting is that there are two parts to us, at least I believe there are. One is physical, one is non-physical. In the physical, we have an experience here. In the non-physical, we have a separate experience. So what I'm saying is that, you know, there is an amalgamation, I believe, of different factions of aliens that seem to be interested in us. The most famous are, of course, the greys. And what are they interested in? They're interested in reproduction. Now, why would a species which is interested in reproduction and thus cannot reproduce themselves be doing this? It doesn't make any sense. And of course, we have to look at the work of Dr. David Jacobs and many other eminent scientists within the field who, you know, claim that this is a reality. I mean, I didn't see any uh, hybrids when I was on board, if it was a ship that I was on, I assume it was. Um, but there are different factions, and I believe that on a soul level, uh, because we are multidimensional, I believe that um, certain aliens may be linked to certain souls, and that they're coming in and going out with their own soul contracts, with their own agendas. Um, and, it, you know, where I'm concerned, it doesn't make me a bad person because I had a bad experience. I believe that the experience itself opens something in me. And what was interesting was going back to Noddy. I'd seen him before. I can't recall where or when. And what Pierre Sebat said to me going back about the scrambling of reality, these beings are clever because they know how to, you know, suspend time suspend people because I felt my brother and my sister had been temporarily removed from the situation through this this uh, not basically being scrambled, sorry, trying to find my words there. So whatever it was, was <laughs> to my mind not good uh, because they're out for their own, but there are, I'm sure there are good factions because of the, uh, um, the experience we performed in Rendlesham in the 8th of June 1998, which was a craft of incredible proportions. There were no intelligence, we didn't see any beings with it, but it proved something to me. It proved that consciousness is far more powerful and that we ourselves are multidimensional. And I think that we're just beginning to open our eyes to this concept, however painful it is for us as a species to get past this limited programming that we've all been led to believe in, you know? And I think now, but we have to be careful because some people unfortunately can go right off the rocks, literally, um, with how they view reality and they view things. So when we're dealing with human consciousness, there has to be a, a kind of like a balance between the way that we view reality and we're viewing this subject matter, you know. But I do believe there are other factions of extraterrestrials. Um, but the only ones that I recall were the greys and the reptilians. They're the only ones that I dealt with. So that's all I can talk uh, on behalf of, I'm afraid, if it, even if it's on behalf of. <laughs> well, right. From <laughs> I've got your... a sense of humor with that. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. I, I'm, yeah, you're not their ambassador. We get it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> do you think Any that... <laughs> do you think that these are the same greys that are mentioned sort of in the myths and legends of old, or are you not someone that, you're not even going to try to ascribe any of it to ancient aliens or pyramids or Atlantis or anything like that? Like that. Do you have opinions on that, or do you just, you're just looking at your experience and your research and carrying it forward? Well, I 
just had deja vu at the exact moment. I'm sorry, I just have to report that for your listeners. I've just had deja vu. In answer to your question, it's a good question. I believe myself personally that we were engineered and created, not, I believe, by the greys. I believe that there were other extraterrestrials responsible for that, at least that's my opinion. I believe that the hominid um, was used as the uh, most suitable model for whatever the gods wanted. And we were workers, and as I said today, nothing much changed because we're still a slave space, uh, slave species uh, for our governments. Um, so I believe that these extraterrestrials that are coming now, most notably the greys, um, I don't feel personally are, are creators. I may be wrong, but I just have an inward feeling, or if you're asking me to guess upon that, I will guess and say I don't feel that they are. Their modus operandi is dark. Their modus operandi is restricted to only what they want. I mean, you know, our world's in a dire place. The, the, the environment's collapsing. You know, it's in, a, it's in a terrible mess. Where are the aliens? You know, if they want to come and help us, we'll gladly could do with some help. They haven't. All they've done is lied most of the time. They've lied to their captains. You know, they, people say, oh, they come from this or that, that star system. Going back to Betty and Barney Hill, I, a lovely, beautiful couple. I doubt very much whether or not these greys come all the way from Zeta Reticuli just to abduct a beautiful and loving couple and then go off again. And even then, uh, the telltale signs are evident in that case when they removed Barney's false teeth and then tried to remove Betty's. Unless that was the first time they abducted someone who had false teeth. So, you know, it's rather puzzling. And, and this is what's fascinating. I mean, you know, we can only, we don't have the, all the answers. In fact, we have hardly any. Um, but what's interesting is we can formulate certain conclusions. I think this is a very deep and very old intelligence. I think it's been here for a very long time. And I believe that, you know, with each epoch that uh, we, we go beyond, they change, they morph with the times. Um, and I believe that, you know, we're continuously seeing them as these aliens, space aliens, which even Jack Vallée, Dr. Jack Vallée, um, had stated in his research as being like the fairy folk from the old days. And they're just changing themselves like they changed their crafts from the old, you know, dirigibles. And then, of course, the flying, the rockets, the ghost rockets, and then the flying saucers, and then the triangular crafts, and seeming to be mockingly one step ahead of us and, and each and every time that we go forward. So, we, you know, that's the way I see it. I believe that in our genesis, there's a lot of history that's been hidden and within the scientific community, uh, if they don't follow the official narrative, they lose their jobs and their funding, well, their funding and their jobs, basically. Um, but I believe that we were engineered created most definitely and of course if we were the original inhabitants of this planet why on earth would we shy from our very own sun um, you know on a, a biological level we have adapted to a more uh, stronger and more robust level of survival and um, we're quite weak really so i believe that we are as humans extraterrestrial part extraterrestrial anyway so that's about the, the scariest part about all that is that uh, going back to your original abduction story, the greys were sort of the, the less bad ones. I'm not going to say the good ones, but they were the less bad ones. So the, <laughs> the reptilians, I mean, I could. they were the ones that you, you felt the, their malevolence was palpable. 
Um, oh, yes. So, 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 where where do they fit into this? Or, or we don't know. Okay, we don't know. And and you know, there's been many theories about um, you know they never seem to fit into the current level of ufology. Now they're becoming popular. Um, and it's really horrible because, you know, it's like we're the pop pickets of the UFO departments. But I will say that even though the subject matter is gaining a lot of uh, um, notoriety in the, in, the, in the good ways, as well as the bad ways, you know, I haven't popped out of the woodwork and just, you know, here I am. And this has been going on since the abduction of Anonymous since 1989. Uh, my interest in that has been uh, totally, uh, completely like, you know, sacred to me. And that's what I'm still doing to this day. So, you know, I've been looking for my own truths. With regards to the reptilians, well, we can only formulate a conclusion. Um, they seem to have been inherent within our history, um, especially the dark arts. Um, we have statues of them all over London. Uh, they're ingrained in most of history. And, um, you know, there's other researchers who have their own ideas about them. Um, some of them consider them to be interdimensional. Um, a film producer I know called Chris Turner, a brilliant film producer here in England, has done one called Don't Mention the Reptilians as a DVD release, and he interviewed David Icke. And it appears that whenever the reptilians are mentioned, we're not allowed to mention them, um, you know, for some strange reason. So are they connected? Yes, I believe that they are. But I think that like any society, any structured society, you'll have different factions of that society. And I think perhaps that's what we're seeing here. Very interesting. Yeah, I, I wish I had uh, intelligent follow-up questions on that, but I, I don't. Um, I guess Neither we'll... do I. Don't worry, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> um, who, who do you typically work with? I mean, you know, I'm sure you're not doing this totally solo. Who, who are some of the people that you collaborate with or bounce ideas off or compare notes with? Like, uh, I'm sure you're part of a community or an association or a group, whether it's formal or informal. Is, is there any place, is there any sort of repository for information? Yes, we have created, or Nigel Ross has created here in English, the, the England National UFO Reporting Service, which is called NUFORS. And that is where we are uh, affiliated with a lot of other researchers that are connecting and uh, trying to get data. Um, through to us rather than going to any other source that secretes that information. We actually sent a letter to a member of parliament um, this year in uh, March. I sent a letter to a senior head of the MPs and um, asking them, look, you know, let's just put everything on the table. Let's bring a group of us together and talk with you people. Let's, uh, you know, open up a new area where we can discuss things and hide nothing and work towards disclosure. Um, and we've got silence back, which uh, which tells us everything. And, and the most disgusting part, and I have said this on another um, conference that I was on with some esteemed uh, ufologists and scientists uh, fighting for disclosure, the most disgusting part of it was that one of uh, the MPs that was filmed in Parliament clearly had no idea about the UFO phenomena and stood there saying, well, you know, with these things whizzing around. I mean, how infuriating was that? You know, you know, these people who are paid over the, the heads with their jobs, who don't have to worry about anything, looking at us like we're plebs, uh, sitting down wearing tin hats. Hello, wake up, smell the coffee. This is not something that's a fad or 
is something that's just made up within the mind. This is a reality, and you know, and I and I want so badly for that disclosure, even if we don't get all of it. But just for them to admit, yes, we are dealing with an intelligence that is not from this planet. As soon as you admit that, then we are making some grounds. It doesn't mean that anyone will be out of a job. Not that it's considered a job. I do this as a labour of um, love. Um, make very little money from it as a researcher, but I love scraping the, uh, the barrel and I love doing what I do. But we are affiliated with a great minds. I mean, we're connected with most members of UFON in America and here in England with other UFO groups. It doesn't matter what uh, you know banner they have or what manner they work under. We are all of one. We're working for one goal. It doesn't matter if you're in, um, you know, we have friends in Germany, in Sweden, in France, in Belgium, in Italy, you know, in your great country, in America, and here in England as well, along with many others, working together as a unit is what it's all about, you know, and uh, I think that's wonderful. I think that really helps us all, give us motivation to fight towards that truth. And we also, within our groups, can almost suss out if there's anyone that's like, you know, trying to lead us up the garden path or, you know, trying to take us down an area we're not meant to go. So we're very honoured to be connected with these uh, these organizations and these wonderful people. It's, it's awesome. Let me ask you a, a question. I don't know if there's a simple answer, but probably the most famous UFOlogist or researcher right now is Jeremy Corvell or Corville. Um, pro, oh, yes. Pro or con? Sorry? A pro Jeff? or con. Uh, the, the, I, I, well, let me tell you why I'm asking this. I, I, you know, I follow a few people on Twitter and very quickly... You've seen that there's like a there's like a schism inside inside the UFO community, uh, where I mean they're almost fighting with each other over certain things, and and it looked like there was there's a pro Corvell uh, faction using that word again and an anti Corvell faction. I'm sure there's other subgroups in that, but that seems to be the big one between. Uh, you know, had I not been yeah. paying attention, I would have thought that that these two you know accounts would have been you know, simpatico would have been on the same side with things, but they, they seem to, uh, well, call BS on each other quite a bit and demand proof and this, that, and the other thing. And it's, I mean, you know, and, that, and like I said... Yeah, well, I met him. Uh -huh. I, met, I met him in the States, and he is a lovely guy, and he's really passionate about the subject matter, Jeremy, and a, an amazing documentarist, and you will get this, unfortunately, when you start to climb, when you start to become known, when you start to get into the media, you will then find, unfortunately, that you will be attacked from both sides. And this is where it gets very damaging because people then claim that you are working towards disinformation or this or that. And, and really, it gets very, very muddy. But I believe that Jeremy is doing the right thing. He's just you know, passionate about what he does. And the same with Dr. Stephen Greer. He has his admirers and he has his haters. But I'm sure that underneath all that he that he is, is that he's trying to bring this subject matter to the general members of the general public. Um, so you'll get these people who, who are known, very well known, and people that I respect. Um, I don't think that they have their own agendas. I just think that like anyone, when you, know, you start to become known, then there'll be some people ready to bring you down. 
um, but I'm not going to get involved with what people believe and what they don't. I think that's very dangerous territory. But I personally believe that on some levels they're good guys and they're doing the best that they can for us. Very good. Um, where can people find you? Where can they find your stuff? Do you, you want to give the names of any of your books or any of your other work where so folks can support you or check out your work? Yeah, you can find us on uh, www .com. Uh That's uh, www and then Kinsella, which is K-I-N-S-E-L-L-A and twins.com. And that's our website. And um, the books that are available at the moment um, is one called A Passage to Eternity, The Enigma of the Dead, UFOs and Aliens. You can get that on Amazon. Um, and then there is Guardians of the Dead, which is on Amazon that I wrote, and also my latest one, which has been published by Philip Mental's Flying Disc Press, um, is called You, the Public Deceived, the Grand UFO Deception, and that is available as audio, paperback, hardback, and Kindle. And, and uh, that is uh, the most recent book, You, the Public Deceived, the Grand UFO Deception. And I am working on two other new books. One of them is Secret, and the other one is is on UFOs, the secret one that I'm not revealing just yet to anyone. And there is another one I'm working on which explores more of the things that have happened to myself um, in a more detailed detailed way because I want to bring out more of an kind of like an autobiography of truth and honesty of how I've tried to deal with this um, because, you know, um, there's a lot more that, that, that was involved uh, with regards to not just the abduction, but other UFO sightings and the latest um, and the last uh, was on the 9th of April 2016 at 11.15 at night wow. with three amazing UFOs that were caught on camera and had been hovering right over my twin brother and myself. And um, that changes everything. That changes everything. And one guy said to me, um, where's your proof? And I'm like... Even if I had that proof, I don't think I'd want you to see it because of uh, the way that you're coming across to me. Do you know what I mean? Sure. So I just think to myself, the proof is how you view it. You are the author of your reality. Uh, but when other people see these things, it confirms and clarifies what we have suspected, that we are dealing with some kind of uh, higher intelligence that's operating on, on much much vaster different levels of reality than we can currently comprehend. But working together, we can try and put some of those parts together. So that's how you can get me. And also, I run a, um, or I don't run, I'm, I'm linked with the Paranormal UK Radio Network, and my brother and I host our own Twin Souls radio show that we bring out once a month. Um, and uh, that's on the PA, PA UK Radio Network as well. And I am doing a few conferences and talks, and hopefully, um, if everything goes fine with the travel, we will be going to um, uh, the mega conference, UFO conference in Laughlin. We were supposed to attend this year, but of course, because of COVID, we couldn't make it because of the travel restrictions. Sure. Uh, but we're supposed to be going back there, me and my, my twin brother, to do a separate talk each um, with Bob Brown, who is there as well. So we've got the, a number of conferences coming Great. Well, you sound busy. Um, well, when you're ready to make your book less secret or when you, when it's out and you're ready to promote it and talk about it, 
uh, do come back. And if you uh, reach any other conclusions or, you know, or anything worth, uh, you know, that you want to talk about, just uh, reach out and we'd be happy to chat with you again. Uh, thank you for sharing your story with us. Um, I, I, I can't imagine no matter how many times that you do it, that it gets any easier. Um, and, uh, you know, good luck to you and, and your brother. Uh, so, and looking forward thank to, to uh, following your work. Just to finish off, thank you very much, Jeff. You know, this isn't something that is a fad. This isn't something that is generated from mere fantasy. When it really happens to you, when you've had the experience, it leaves an indelible mark upon your consciousness, something that uh, is quite fearful. But, you know, I've got past that point. I've survived the journey. And, you know, I understand and respect those genuine individuals who have had such an experience to know that I understand how they feel. But we survive the journey. We get through it, you know. We, we survive it. And, um, you know, that, that's, the way I, that's the way I see it anyway. But thank you very much for having me on your show, Jeff. It's been wonderful. Appreciate it. You're welcome back anytime. And audience, I think we're going to check on out. Tune in next week. Uh, and thank you all for, for tuning in. Well, thank you very much, Jeff, for your time.